courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, just days before the first votes are cast in the 2024 presidential election, I'm delighted to be joined by my Wall Street Journal opinion page colleague, Kimberly Strassel, as we take a look at the coming year in politics, policy, and elections. Kim, as you all well know, writes the Potomac Watch column every week for the journal's editorial pages and is a regular on our sister podcast, also called Potomac Watch. So with all that Potomac watching going on in her life, I can't think of a better observer to tell us what's happening in the roiling waters of American politics from the Potomac to the Pacific. Kim, welcome to Free Expression. Oh, Jerry, it's great to be here. I love Free Expression, so it's an honor to get to be with you. Well, I love Potomac Watch, but we're not going to waste too much time on mutual back scratching. Let's, so, <laughs> let's start then as we look ahead at this very, very important year, roughly halfway between Washington and the West Coast. And that, of course, would be Iowa, where next Monday... Republicans will go to the caucuses and vote for their presidential preference. And of course, tonight, we're recording this, I should say, on Wednesday morning tonight, there will be perhaps critical final debate between just two candidates this time, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump was the only one who qualified for the debate, but of course, was once again chosen not to take part. And instead, doing a bit of counter-programming also in Iowa to be shown at roughly the same time. So we're into the final few days, Kim, here. This is all relative. Donald Trump is obviously the prohibitive leader in Iowa and indeed everywhere else. But it was always thought that Ron DeSantis kind of had the best chance maybe of challenging Trump in Iowa. But in the recent weeks and days, I think we've really seen that the race for second place tightening. There's a poll just out, I think, today which actually shows Nikki Haley tied with Ron DeSantis for second place, again, a long way behind Donald Trump. And then, of course, we've got New Hampshire to come, where Nikki Haley does seem to be really making some significant strides. So my first question to you, Kim, is does Nikki Haley right now have the big mo? I think she does. And that's what makes Iowa, this is a make or break moment in particular for Ron DeSantis. As you note, he burst onto the scene. Everyone saw him as the guy to beat, at least when it came to a head-to-head with Donald Trump. He struggled, though, and he has raised expectations for himself very high in the state, and that is now the burden he must carry. So, you know, he's made a big deal of noting that he's been to all 99 counties, the full Grassley in Iowa. He has vowed that he will win the state, and he's also looking at a prospect where the next state, New Hampshire, is not a strong place for him. He's currently running fourth in New Hampshire with uh, 6.9% of the vote. So he needs an enormous Iowa victory. He needs to beat Nikki Haley there. He's not going to beat Donald Trump. I cannot see that happening, but he needs to narrow the gap between what he gets and what Trump gets. Can he do that? Uncertain. I will say this. Iowa is a state that rewards hard work. And it's a state where organization is key. DeSantis has a thousand precinct captains lined up in Iowa. That is something that's very important when it comes to caucus night, because that process is different than a traditional primary. So he does have some ground game things going for him. Will it allow him to really thump Nikki Haley and come out of this the star of the evening other than Donald Trump? Yet to be seen. As I said, we've got this debate tonight between just the two of them. The first time they've really gone head to head in a debate in this primary season. And I should say, again, we're recording this 
this Wednesday morning. Those of you who are eager listeners to Free Expression will be listening to this proactively, as it were, prospectively before that debate. But if you do happen to tune in later, you'll know how it ended. But Kim, since we're talking ahead of that debate, how important is you've just laid out the stakes there very well for Ron DeSantis? What does he have to do in this debate tonight with Nikki Haley? You know, he was on a Fox News town hall last night. And I have to say, it was kind of impressive to watch. And this is why I love that we have this primary process, Jerry, because yes, it's grueling. Yes, it's hard. People get tired of it. But one of the purposes of it is not just to give voters a chance to register their interests, but also it turns people into better candidates. And Ron DeSantis, you watched him last night. He has become better. He's learned how to smile. He makes the occasional joke about his family and his wife, and he's become much better at translating what he did in Florida as a governor into what he would do as president. I think those are all really good things. He needs to do those again in the debate tonight. And Watch to see how much he attempts to do that versus what his tendency has been lately, which is instead of just pile on Nikki Haley, really attack her. You know, Trump has been going after her as well, too. I can see the need to try to tear down your opponent, but I think a lot of these attacks are not very persuasive. I think he'd do a far better job for himself if he were to go in there and instead make the case as to why he's a better alternative than her or Trump on his own merits. It's funny you say that about Ron DeSantis and smiling. Smiling (laughs) is very important. I'll share a little story here. I was fortunate enough, privileged to moderate one of the Republican debates back in 2015 in the 2016 cycle, where it was a Fox Business Wall Street Journal debate. And I moderated one of the debates and Donald Trump and Jeb Bush and Rand Paul were on stage and others, of course. And during one of the commercial breaks, the candidates come over and chat with the moderators and Jeb Bush came over and chatted to me and he said, yeah, it's nice to meet you. He said, you know what, Jerry, you should smile more. And I looked at him and sort of, you know, (laughs) slightly puzzled way. And then he looked rather sheepishly and he said, at least that's what my advisors are constantly telling me. So maybe given the Florida connection, maybe he's had the same advisors as Ron DeSantis has been advised to smile more. But stepping back a little bit, and again, I don't want to write Ron DeSantis' obituary notice because who knows, we're still four or five days away from these caucuses. Anything could happen. But DeSantis, as you well said, Kim, at the start, a year ago, was very much the challenger to Trump. He'd come out of that extraordinary, successful gubernatorial election in Florida, getting almost 60% of the vote. He was the hard-charging challenger. A lot of people thought, actually, he was going to beat Trump and maybe even beat him handily. What went wrong? Yeah. And just to your point about not writing him off, let's all remember, I was in neat place because the voters are can and often do break late. You know, if you look back at 2016, Trump was leading in the polls there by 4.7. He ended up losing to Ted Cruz by 3.3 points. So not the biggest swing ever, not 20 points, but going on 10. So things can definitely change here. I think, look, one of the problems that Ron DeSantis has, and I have said this from the start, is I keep saying somebody needs to free Ron DeSantis. He looked to have become prey to what happens to too many campaigns, especially gubernatorial candidates, they go into the national field and then they become surrounded by advisors who all have this advice about how they're now supposed to act and what they're now supposed to do. And I think that has very much constrained Ron DeSantis in certain areas. You look back at his congressional career, for instance, and how he voted on foreign affairs and his comments on national security, much more of a hawk. He didn't have to talk about that much in Florida, but what it feels a little bit like now when you see him talking about 
Ukraine at least, is he's trying to split the difference. There's a lot of gamesmanship going on. He doesn't entirely want to alienate Donald Trump voters. He doesn't want to look like a wimp either. He doesn't want to side with Joe Biden, but he does have some belief in strong American powers. And you get this muddy middle in the end. You know, there was that one incredible moment And I think this just sums it up where all the candidates were asked a question up on the debate stage earlier in these Republican debates. And you actually saw Ron DeSantis looking up and down the group of people before he decided whether or not to raise his hand. And that to me just sort of sums up part of Ron DeSantis's problem. When he's on issues that he absolutely knows how he feels about and is confident, he's great. When it comes to some of these touchier issues that he's been advised on, he doesn't look as full of clarity. That's a very good point. Yes, I think we will remember that particularly sort of toe-curling moment in that debate. Again, we're not running anybody off or talking anybody nope. up or saying it's all or not a single vote has been cast yet. It's a very dangerous moment, especially just days before the first votes are cast to speculate. But it does look as though, as we stand, and again, we're going to come on and talk a little bit more about New Hampshire in a minute, but it does look as though Nikki Haley, where Ron DeSantis has waned, Nikki Haley has waxed and does look like, shall we say, going into the first votes, the stronger challenger to Donald Trump. Why do you think that is? What explains Haley's ascent in the course of the last year? Just to your point, by the way, new CNN, University of New Hampshire poll out in New Hampshire, Donald Trump 39, Nikki Haley 32. So ponder that for a moment. And look, she's really in probably the best position right now. If you just step back and you're looking at the horse race, expectations for her have remained relatively low in Iowa. So if she does well, it's all to her benefit, right? I mean, if she ties Ron DeSantis or beats him in Iowa, she's going to come out of that state looking very strong. Then she goes into New Hampshire, which is much more an electorate, given that independents can vote in that, that has gravitated to her style of politics, in which she's just a, a little bit more approachable and relatable on some of these touchy cultural issues that have so dominated the debate. I think she's been in this race longer than anybody else, Jerry. I think that's helping her. She's got a really strong donor base that has only been more enthused by her as she's gone up in the polls. And, you know, she's got a lot of experience being on a national stage, given her time as UN ambassador. She also, and I would say this about her because I think it does matter, more so than the other candidates, especially more so than Donald Trump. She came out of the box early with policy plans that she really hammers on on the campaign trail. And that is the sort of stuff that really New Hampshire voters and Iowa voters in particular appreciate. They like people who've done their homework. So I think she just come across as a solid conservative, yet someone that's also a bit of a fighter. And that's what people want, or at least those that are debating whether or not to leave Donald Trump. That brings me very neatly, Kim, thank you to the next topic, to the next question. And, you know, we spent a lot of people be complaining out there thinking, why are they talking about you know, these two people who are between them in the national polls getting a less than half what Donald Trump. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. And I know he'll forgive me for describing him in those terms because he's such a forgiving person. But let's talk about the elephant in the room here, Donald Trump, who is by any margin miles ahead of either of these candidates. I suppose the question really with Trump going into Iowa and then going on to New Hampshire is Trump so dominates the Republican Party, so dominates the thinking of Republican voters. I think it's fair to say, you know, like him or not, so captures the hearts and the minds, the motivations of Republican voters. And given again what's happened to him in the last year and is going to happen to him in the course of the next year with these indictments and then these trials that may be coming up, why is there any conceivable reason to believe that Donald Trump would not 
comfortably win this Republican nomination. Yeah, you bring up the great mystery of Donald Trump. I mean, let's just briefly mention his strengths. One, right now you have a president in the Oval Office at the moment who's doing a dreadful job on the economy, foreign policy. And that's very helpful to Trump because every day people get up and say, you know, my life was better five years ago. Things really were going better. And, you know, he's got a strong policy record there. He is the ultimate fighter for a Republican Party that has felt on the back foot for a number of years against liberals and Democrats. And it's helpful that he's been in the news so much, in part because of all of these indictments, but attacks on him from the left, which make, I think, a lot of conservative voters feel the need that they should support him. Nonetheless, it is fascinating to me, Jerry, this guy is essentially the incumbent, okay? He's essentially the equivalent of Joe Biden. And he's at 50% in Iowa. You would think he'd be doing better than that. And that's because if you go out and you talk to voters, they do appreciate everything he did four years ago. They believe he'd probably do a good job if he were able to. And that is what really worries a lot of conservative voters, is that he is the subject of constant attack. He is sort of a, a walking chaos ball. Can they get anything done if we were reelected? And given the negative attitudes that exist, especially among independents and moderates about him, is he too big of a risky bet even against Joe Biden, much less if Biden were to drop out and another Democrat were to take his place. So I think those are the concerns he faces with the electorate. One last question on Iowa, and then I want to move on to New Hampshire and the broader topic. I won't put you on the spot and ask you to give a number or, <laughs> or anything like that, because I know that's a silly game. You've already said this. So much of this is about expectations, right? I mean, we can point to all these famous primaries in the past where candidate has won, but hasn't won by enough to be dominant. I mean, that happened famously to Lyndon Johnson in 1968. It happened in 1992 in New Hampshire when Bill Clinton was running in New Hampshire and actually, I think, finished third, but did better than was expected. It's always the expectations game. So for Trump, the expectations are sky high. What range, roughly speaking, are we looking at in terms of his share of the vote? Again, it would be astonishing if he were not to win Iowa, not to win by at least double digits. But is there some kind of a number you'll be looking at and you'll be thinking on the night as you see those results coming in, I will make you say either, wow, Trump has completely blown it out of the park or wow, maybe Trump actually isn't quite as strong as we thought he was. Yeah. And I don't even say it's my number. I think it's just the way the public mentality will be. And this is how I would imagine it would break is that, look, the number, unfortunately for him at the moment that he has set as his bar or the place he should be is 50%. So I think that a number that is closer to that he gets a gold star and people say, look, he performed as expected. He hit expectations. But you start getting down toward 40 rather than 50, and you have another candidate that is polling in 30s or comes in with a victory in the 30s, I think he goes into New Hampshire looking a lot weaker, looking vulnerable, looking beatable. And that's a real problem for his campaign, especially given some of these poll numbers that we just mentioned coming out of New Hampshire. And then especially, we'll see what the dynamics are too, right? Does Chris Christie just do deplorably in Iowa? Does he succumb to the pressure right now to get out? He's running third in New Hampshire. Do those voters go to Haley? We just can't predict what's going to happen there. But I will tell you, it's notable. Trump's team is worried about this now. His team is out telling reporters, reminding them, no GOP candidate has won by more than 12 points in Iowa since Bob Dole in 1988. So they're trying to lower expectations. They know that this is a potential problem for them. We're going to take a short break then. When we come back, I'll have more with my Wall Street Journal editorial page colleague, Kim Strassel, previewing the 2024 presidential election. 
Please stay with us. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a teen from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Wall Street Journal columnist, editorial board member, and my colleague, Kim Strassel. And we're talking about the 2024 presidential election. Let's talk about New Hampshire. As you say, that latest poll that we've had, there actually there are two. One which showed, I think, a Boston Globe poll, which showed Trump with a big lead, and one which showed, as you say, a very narrow lead, I think down, as you mentioned, to just at single digits for Trump over Nikki Haley, who clearly seems to have the momentum there. The problem, though, I suppose, is again, I'm sorry to sort of be the sort of boring purveyor of sort of historical precedent here, but we've seen this before, haven't we? Especially, you know, on the Republican side. Because you've already mentioned, you know, independents can choose to vote in either primary. There isn't really a Democratic primary this time around for all kinds of reasons that we've discussed on this podcast in the past. The, you know, there is a primary, but there kind of isn't. And there's a Biden writing campaign. But anyway, a lot of people who might be interested in the Democratic primary are clearly not going to have any interest in voting this time around. So they might register to vote in the Republican primary. And Nikki Haley could end up winning or certainly doing extremely well and running Trump very close, essentially on the backs of people who aren't Republicans. And this ultimately is going to be a Republican primary. She's got to go on, obviously, South Carolina, home state after that, and then Super Tuesday. Again, I recall very, very well, because I covered it very closely, the 2000 Republican campaign when John McCain was running against George W. Bush. Bush won Iowa, I think. Bush was the prohibitive favorite. He was kind of like the anointed candidate. McCain ran a very strong race in New Hampshire, kind of doubled down on you and put all his chips on you. I'm sure won. And everybody said, wow, the race is wide open. And Bush went and promptly thrashed him in South Carolina, went on to win. Sorry for the long-winded way of putting it, but isn't that Nikki Haley's problem that she may appeal to those crossover voters and may well be a better candidate in the general election, but she's got to win Republican voters in the primary. Yep, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And South Carolina will be her test. Now, again, you just laid out, I think, the real hurdles for her. Yes, she's going to go to South Carolina. You look at the real clear politics average in South Carolina. Trump's at 52 and she is at 22. And this, by the way, is the state she used to be governor of. So, I mean, that really tells you a lot. That's closed primary down there. It's entirely Republican voters. It's South. This is a place of Trump fandom. They really like the guy. So now how much of that changes if she does well in Iowa and if she does extremely well in New Hampshire? I still believe there's an element of this primary in which voters haven't entirely tuned in, amazingly, even though we're only less than a week from Iowa. But there has just been so much other news dominating. I think it's a bit weird, too, that voters haven't been able to see Donald Trump versus any of the other candidates on stage. Uh, Remember, things can happen really fast here. We'll see what happens in between Iowa and New Hampshire in terms of, is Ron DeSantis still in the race? Is Chris Christie still in the race? Is Nikki Haley still in the race? But there's a potential for some more dropouts overall. I think that's the bigger point. What does that do for the consolidation of the vote? Does Donald Trump at some point feel, if he's not doing as well, does he feel compelled to have to take part in a debate? I don't know. But that could be an interesting moment, too. But you are right. Unless this field clears... And unless one person is able to make their case against Donald Trump, 
I don't see any way at the moment that he doesn't become the nominee. And all of this, of course, before well, this legal process plays out with Trump. And I just want to ask you a little bit about that, because, again, I think it, most people agree that this run of indictments that he faced last year, we can argue about the merits of them. But I think a lot of people, even people who aren't necessarily Trump supporters, did see this as a kind of a pile on, as the weaponization of justice. Certainly some of these cases are incredibly flimsy. There might be a, some strength to one or two of them. But it certainly seemed to engender tremendous support for Trump and sympathy for Trump and this sense that who else are we going to back? The Democrats are weaponizing the justice process, the law enforcement process. They're coming after their political enemies. He's the man we've got to back. Now, we're going to see this now play out. Now, we've got these court cases. The Supreme Court's been considering a case. We've got this court hearing that's been going on this week in D.C. to determine whether or not Trump has presidential immunity. And on the initial reading of those, that hearing doesn't seem to be going very well for him. So chances are pretty good, I think, still at some point over the course of this year, these judicial processes do play out. Can we just expect that again, for the reasons I've just laid out, just to reinforce for many Republicans, for most Republicans, to reinforce their support for Trump? What do you think is any risk at all that as this goes on? And maybe we learn some more things, particularly about what happened around January the 6th or maybe the Mar-a-Lago documents case, that it may make some Republican primary voters think, you know what, I'm actually not sure about this guy. I have a different view on this. I've come to the belief, just as I talk to a lot of Trump voters, that the details of any of this stuff no longer matter for the reasons that you just explained in the beginning is that there has been such a pylon on Trump. And because so many of the occasions of that in the beginning were fictitious, you know, the Russia collusion hoax, for instance, that Republican primary voters have largely tuned it out. And what they have kept with them is this belief that it's unfair and vicious and the weaponization of government. The details don't really matter as much. It does to some. But for right now, the people that are debating voting for him, it does not. Which is why I continue to say that I think the only thing that really makes a difference here in the end or changes this primary is if instead there is a candidate that can finally break through and get some attention and people begin to focus on him. And at that point, and this does come from talking with people who have voted for Trump in the past, but are uncertain about it now. At that point, those voters then say, are we going to be able to get anything done in the next four years if Donald Trump is a nominee? Or is it going to be more of this again and again and again? Are we tired of all of this? And does this person instead, this alternative, look like they have the kind of mojo and the fight of Trump, but absent all of the crazy that seems to attend him? I think that's the only thing that changes the way this race works. All right. To my shame and embarrassment, we've spent 25 minutes here, Kim, talking about the primary race and falling into the trap that all journalists tend to do, which is talk about the horse race. We haven't really talked about the issues or the policies. And I do want to just get a little bit on that. The terms of the primary debate so far seem to be you know, essentially <laughs> dictated by Trump, largely about whether or not Trump has been the victim of, you know, but whether he really lost the 2020 election and then whether he's been the victim of weaponized law enforcement since then. It's all of these kind of cultural things, you know, I'm looking out for you, I'm your retribution. It's all of those cultural issues that I think made Trump so appealing that he kind of speaks for people who feel that they've been held in contempt by the establishment and are actually being sort of marginalized and actually in, indeed pressed by the establishment, all of that kind of stuff. And to be honest, 
Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and the other, and it's all except uh, Chris Christie, really, have kind of tiptoed around the whole Trump issue a little bit. They haven't really. Ron DeSantis is starting now, kind of almost in a sort of kind of late stage desperation to sort of take on Trump directly on the personality, but they haven't really challenged his character or indeed much of that narrative that he's been putting forward. So the question I have is is there any kind of real substantive difference between what Trump might do as president and what Nikki Haley might do as president? Because, you know, again, you talk to certain conservatives who don't like Nikki Haley. They think that Trump is this populist, America first, get America out of foreign wars, bring Americans back home. He's going to prosecute these culture wars in the way they want. It's much going to be much tougher on immigration. She's got this sort of interesting sort of economic populism about not wanting to touch entitlements and that kind of stuff. Whereas they view Nikki Haley as the kind of old guard Republican, right? The sort of, if you like, Bush, Romney, whatever you want to think of. I mean, it doesn't seem to have played much of a role in the primary. Do you think there is any real substantive difference in, in terms of what might happen January 2025, depending on which of these candidates actually wins? Oh, absolutely. And it's why this race is, to me, as someone who cares about policy, been so exceptionally frustrating. I mean, you might not know, if you lived in Iowa or New Hampshire even, that Ron DeSantis is in favor of a flat tax. He recently came up with a flat tax plan. Or that Nikki Haley has some really good ideas and has been brave enough to talk about entitlement reform. I do think that there are some issues that are inescapably have become battle lines out there that I do think are playing in, although I think that the debate has been warped around them. You kind of described it in a certain way, talking about this popular vision of a populist Trump versus an old guard. I think that's not the way to look at it, but it's national security, obviously. You have a Nikki Haley who believes in a very muscular, robust American foreign policy position in the world. You've got Donald Trump, who's increasingly gone the other way. America first, I would use the word a little isolationist. And then Ron DeSantis, again, I think it's this problem, sort of standing on both sides of the fence post, not entirely sure where to come down there. I do think that there would be substantive differences in the way that all of these people manage a White House. They'd all be generally conservative, but the devil is in the details. And with this populist streak that has grown up in the GOP movement, I think that the outcome of this race, for those reasons alone, are going to be very important for the future of the conservative movement. All right, let's wrap this up by lifting our eyes all the way up to November and looking at the general election. And again, I'm going to do a sort of dangerous thing here and kind of assume some things, but again, barring the sort of race unfolding in the way that you've just described it might do. And so with the Nikki Haley candidacy, let's say that the current prohibitive favorite, Donald Trump, is the nominee and Joe Biden is the nominee on the Democratic side. Maybe more doubt about that, but we'll see. So we get to the general election. What's going to determine that outcome? Because it seems to me Joe Biden is deeply unpopular and deeply unpopular for lots of good reasons. His own personality and character and age, the economy, and despite the attempts by Democrats to talk up the economy, prices, voters' concern about the economy, I think can be summed up as simple as that. The prices have risen by 20% under Joe Biden, and they feel rightly and understandably worse off. Immigration is an absolute catastrophe and a scandal and a disgrace, and we're seeing even more extraordinary stories about what's going on with immigration here. They've lost totally, either willfully or otherwise, lost control of the border. And America and the world looks weak. You and I may applaud some of the things that Joe Biden has done over Ukraine or over the Middle East, but the US just, you know, after the Afghanistan, which all looks weak. So Biden is incredibly unpopular with a record that no one wants to run on. And against that, you have 
Donald Trump, those should be the circumstances in which a Republican, in which the alternative, frankly, just it should be able to take this race easily. But of course, it all comes down to what people's doubts about Trump's character and personality. I've described this in the past as, you know, the election contest will be between the incapable Joe Biden and the unspeakable Donald Trump. To you, is that the right framing that this is going If it is between Biden and Trump, it's going to come down to weighing voters' deep dissatisfaction with Biden against their concerns and fears about what another Trump term might mean. Oh, absolutely. I could not have said it better, Jerry. I think it's a perfect summation of what's going on out there. And it's why it's just fascinating to me, because if you're a conservative voter out there, if you look at the polls and Nikki Haley, this is her biggest applause line when she goes out and she talks about that uh, New York Times poll shows her beating Biden by 17 points in some states in a general election. People you know, are really blown away by that. I'm blown away by that. But then again, It's the way it should be turning out in any other race where Trump wasn't, as you say, the elephant in the room. You have a very old president who's having a very hard time of it up against a younger, more dynamic candidate who has some really good ideas, too. Of course, it's going to be a blowout. And the Republican Party, if they had a nominee like that, are potentially looking at Reagan-like victories from 1980. You know, I mean, this would be a really big deal, especially when you look out too. This is what I find most fascinating. You are seeing demographic shifts out there, Jerry, among minority voters and younger voters who are a little tired of their longtime affiliation with the Democratic Party. They're looking for something new. But is Donald Trump really what they're looking for in terms of the new? Maybe not. So I think that's another big question is if you have a Trump-Biden rematch, what is voter turnout? in the scenario that you described? Is there going to be much enthusiasm for any of this? So some big stakes and some big possibilities for change or some big possibilities for what the polls show, which is a rematch between two guys that the majority of neither party wants. Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist for the Journal, also author of several books, Kim, including one last year, still available, right? Your book? Yes, yeah, it's called The Biden Malaise. The Biden Malaise, exactly. We're capturing very well the spirit of the 1970s. Comparison to Jimmy Carter, which I think seems very relevant right now as he's looking more and more like that president of the past. Biden hasn't yet had the killer rabbit episode, but but maybe that's still to come. Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist for the Journal. Thanks so much for joining Free Expression. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. We'll be back next week with more discussion about the big events that are shaping the world. In the meantime, thank you again. Have a great week.